Genesis 22, 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in the order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One ancient hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. This is our, our last sermon on on Abraham. And as we've seen throughout this series, it's, it's really faith that has been the crux, that has been the, the, the organizing factor of, of Abraham's life. And this, is, as we reach the, the climax of the Abraham narrative, is, is no different. But it's, it's also the case that this is not necessarily an easy passage. And as we dig into it, uh, we do need the work of the Spirit to open our eyes to see and to open our ears to hear 
God's gospel promise in it. So since it's the word that gathers us, that collects us, that creates us, that, that crafts us, let us turn to the Lord in prayer for his understanding. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given it to us. Open our eyes, open our ears, Lord. Soften our hearts so that we might understand this word, that we might know this word, that we might love this word. And most of all, that Christ himself might address us in this word. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So the first question we want to ask ourselves when we're looking at this passage is, what is going on? We find here an account where God commands a father to sacrifice his son upon the altar. So we have to ask ourselves, what is this? Is this a total breach of any and all ethics? Is this a breach of all things good? And reading the passage like this is, is not uh, an uncommon position. For example, the uh, actress and comedian Julia Sweeney in, in her one-woman show, which, which traces um, her own personal loss of, of faith, at one point she reflects on her experience of reading the Bible. And reflecting on that experience, she says the following, quote, The stories just got darker and more convoluted. Like when God asks Abraham to murder his son Isaac. As a kid, we were taught to admire it. I caught my breath reading it. We were taught to admire it? What kind of sadistic test of loyalty is it that asks someone to kill his or her own child? And isn't the proper answer no? I will not kill my child or any child? End quote. And to be sure, we can understand this response, and this is a response that we should take very seriously. But, but, but we also have a surprising contrast, because surprisingly, this passage also proves the very culmination of Scripture's account of Abraham. As Old Testament scholar Gordon Winham writes, quote, the account of the sacrifice of Isaac constitutes the aesthetic and theological summit of the whole story of Abraham. And in particular, Wenham talks about the literary technique at play and the, quote, profundity of its theology. So what we have here is an account that can strike us as barbaric, yet somehow, some way, when fitted into God's grand narrative of redemption, it provides us an incomparable glance of God's goodness, of God's graciousness, of God's salvation. So then we have to ask, what is the profound theology at work here? Well, to say the least, that means that when we dig into Genesis 22, we need to give this passage a careful reading. And towards that end, one important thing we need to do is to situate what's going on here into the entire story of Scripture. And to be sure, Scripture is so big, its story is so comprehensive, that it's also the story that we ourselves find ourselves within. Because this is not just the story of Abraham and Isaac, this is also the story of me and you. 
And if we understand it like this, we are approaching it in the right way. Because remember, one thing we've talked about throughout this series is that we ourselves are children of Abraham. And if that's the case, then we as children of Abraham are a kind of type, a kind of figure of Isaac. Because Isaac just is the very first child of Abraham. And if we want to understand what it means to be a child of Abraham, well, that means we have to look to Isaac. He is what we are. Isaac is the paradigmatic child of Abraham by whom we understand who we ourselves are. And if we understand the status of child of Abraham, then we have to look to the child of Abraham, Isaac. But a question. God calls Isaac, or sorry, God calls Isaac Abraham's only son. So then the reader who's familiar with the, the account up to this point asks, well, what about Ishmael? Wasn't Ishmael also Abraham's son? Doesn't Abraham have two sons? And that makes us focus a little bit more on this term, child of Abraham, because we find that it can function biologically, but we also find that it can function theologically. According to biology, according to physical descent, yes, Abraham had two sons. He had Isaac and he had Ishmael. But theologically speaking, he only had one son, Isaac. Isaac is the child of Abraham both by physical descent and by way of theology. Ishmael is only Isaac's son, Abraham's son, by way of physical descent. And the important point here is to be a child of Abraham by God's reckoning is to share the faith of Abraham. It's to believe and to trust and have faith in God's promise. And in particular, it's that promise that Abraham would become a great nation and a great nation who is God's people and who God, for whom God is their God. As Paul tells us in Galatians 3.7, know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And so, by the reckoning of God, to be a child of Abraham is to share the faith of Abraham, to believe in that very same promise given to Abraham. And we find that only one of Abraham's sons actually shared his faith. Isaac shared that faith, but Ishmael did not. Yes, Isaac himself is a product of that promise. Yes, Isaac is the beginning of that promise being fulfilled. Yes, he's the son of Abraham and Sarah. And yes, even from Isaac, Christ himself will come. Christ will be a physical descendant of Isaac. But even as the child of promise, Isaac, just like his father, must have faith in that promise. Recall a key biblical statement of Abraham's faith. This is back in Genesis 15. It tells us Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Recall that that statement comes to Abraham at the beginning of the covenant ceremony. We've talked about this many, many times. According to covenantal convictions or conventions at that time, you have two parties they both walk between two slaughtered animals, and it's as if they're saying, if I break my word to you, may I end up like these animals? 
But again, it's only one of those parties, only God and not Abraham who walks in between the pieces. And so God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, if you break your word to me, sorry, if, if you break your word to me, may even I end up like these animals. So no matter who breaks their word, it is God who is going to take the covenant curses. And recall also that Abraham received the sign and the seal of circumcision. If we remember what, what circumcision means, it's showing that only by the shedding of blood can we enter into this covenant with God and become God's people and so commune with him. But again, it's not the shedding of the blood of God. Sorry, it's, it's the shedding of the blood of God, not that of Abraham. It is God who will take the covenant curse and be slaughtered as were these animals. So that's all the background. So when we think about this, this current text, what does that mean? Well, we have to ask a very important question here, and I think this is what really orients this passage. How is it that God can shed blood? Think about that question. How can the blood of God be shed? I mean, this is a question that Abraham is wrestling with, right? How is it that God can shed blood? It's a very important question. And when we think about it, we're not even really sure where to start. So put yourself in the place of Abraham. Abraham trusts the promise. We've seen that again and again and again, but he does not know precisely how this promise will be fulfilled. How is it that God himself will take the covenant curses? How can God shed blood if God doesn't have a body? If God had a body, then he would be part of creation, and God is the uncreated creator. Even more, how could it be that the very source of life itself could be killed? If God were killed, if God were to die, then everything else would simply cease to be. There would be no one to create or sustain any part of creation. All of it, the entire universe, would simply go back to nothing. The very source of all life can never forfeit his infinite life and being. God cannot die. So then, Abraham must wonder, what does it mean for God to take the punishment? What does it mean for God to take this covenant curse? What does it mean for God to be cut into pieces like these animals? And to be sure, Abraham knows that he deserves the covenant curses. Abraham knows all the ways that he's fallen short. We've seen on multiple occasions that Abraham has lied about Sarah, saying that his spouse is actually his sister. He does it for self-serving purposes. He puts Sarah into vulnerable and dangerous situations and circumstances. We've also seen him treat Hagar as a piece of property, instrumentalizing her merely as a means to have a child. Abraham has done terrible things, and Abraham knows it. Abraham knows he deserves the covenant curses, and so Abraham is presented with the following conundrum, a conundrum that has three parts. Think about it. Abraham knows that he deserves the covenant curses. That's the first part. Number two, God has promised to take the covenant curses. Three, but to take the covenant curses, that person needs to be subject 
to death, which God is not. And that's got to lead Abraham to the following conclusion. The one who can take the covenant curses, Abraham, was, was promised that he wouldn't. And the one who promised he would take the covenant curses, God, well, he cannot. God can't die. And we have to remember that the people in Scripture are people just like us. They have questions. They wrestle with the promises of God because the promises of God are not always easily resolvable. And it's in light of these seemingly unresolvable realities, I believe, that Abraham interprets the command that he receives from God. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I believe Abraham wrestled with these questions for years, and this command gave him an answer. Uh, before the service, we had read Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, and this gives us a glimpse, I believe, into the thoughts of Abraham. The author of Hebrews says, quote, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead, that even if Isaac was put to death, that God could bring him back to life. And put this together with Abraham's questions, these things that Abraham is wondering. I believe it, it pushed Abraham to the following conclusion. That is, God has promised to take the covenant curses, yet God does not have a body and, and God cannot die. God cannot actually bear the curse. But Isaac's blood will be shed. He will be brought to back to life. He will die and Isaac will not remain dead. Having taken the covenant, having taken the covenant curse, Isaac will be raised to experience the covenant blessing of communion with God. And so Isaac will take the curse, but then Isaac will be raised and receive the blessing. And so God would take the curse in a, in a figurative way. God himself will not actually die, that's impossible, but Isaac will stand in for God. Isaac will represent God. Isaac's death will represent the death of God, and then God will give Isaac back his life. And so great is Abraham's faith in God's promise that Abraham, as Hebrews tells us, believes that God can do this. So Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain together. And as we read in verses 9 through 10, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took his knife to slaughter his son. Abraham had faith. And remember, those who are children of Abraham have the faith of Abraham. And here we begin to see Isaac's faith. And Isaac is the child of Abraham. He is our paradigm. And so to be sure, he too has faith. And how is it that we see Isaac's faith? Well, we have to remember that faith has two parts. Faith has a negative part and a positive part. And the negative part 
concerns the covenant curses, that which we deserve for breaking God's law. The only way to merit this blessed communion with God is by perfectly keeping the two commandments, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Again, Abraham has not done this. Like all of us, he has broken these commandments in a number of different ways, and we've seen this in his treatment of his wife, Sarah. We've seen this in his treatment of Hagar. But we also find that Isaac, too, has fallen victim to these self-serving purposes. Later in Genesis, we'll find that Isaac does the same exact thing. When he travels to a new place, he tells the people that his wife is actually his sister. Even more, we see Isaac poisoning a family with partiality. He puts his two sons against each other, Jacob and Esau, by favoring Esau, even to the point that he's working to resist God's blessing of Jacob. But we also find something very interesting in in Isaac, And, and, and I think we find something in Isaac that we can all relate to in our present cultural moment, what might be called a kind of pessimistic passivity. If, if we look forward in, in Genesis, we, we find a very strange occurrence. If you're familiar with the story, Isaac blesses his two sons, but he does so on what seems to be his deathbed. But if you read the rest of Genesis, it's interesting because Isaac actually goes on to live for decades. It seems like he's just about to die. He's resigned himself to doing so, but he continues on for decades. And these events are open to interpretation, but I do believe this indicates a tendency in Isaac to to think the worst and to fearfully detach himself from happenings and responsibilities. And with all of these faults, we can relate. We've all lied for some self-serving end. We've all treated others as instruments of our own purposes and desires. We've all shown a favoritism and partiality. We've all hurt those closest to us and damaged those relationships with our selfishness. We've all fought against the causes and commands of of gods. When we're faced with one option or another, we've chosen our own preferences. We've all chosen Esau over Jacob. But there's more. It's not just what we've done. It's what we have not done. And this, this brings us back to, I think, Jacob's tendency for fear for passivity, sort of a tendency to check out. We see how this affects our own personal lives. After a hard conversation with a friend or family member, rather than working to resolve the issue, we sort of check out and flick our phones or we stream a show. Instead of having that conversation we know we need to have, we just avoid that particular person that we're supposed to talk to. Um, Instead of letting conversations develop into probing questions. We do our best to steer the conversation to keep it at the surface. We even keep silent when we know that someone is being treated unfairly or being spoken badly of. Our fear and our pessimism push us to passivity, and I believe this is a problem that Isaac himself knows well. And so when we look at the ways we failed to keep the law of God, it's not just what we've done but it's also what we've left undone. So in light of all that, how do we know that Isaac had faith? Well, Isaac gets on the altar. Isaac lets himself be bound 
on the altar. Isaac actually willingly prepares to die on the altar. And it's important to realize that Isaac did not have to do this. As one commentator writes, that an elderly man was able to bind the hands and feet of a lively teenager strongly suggests Isaac's consent. If Isaac didn't want to get on the altar, he did not have to. And Isaac shows faith here. Again, the first part of faith is that negative part. It's recognizing that we are the ones who deserve the covenant curses. It's recognizing that I myself have failed to love God and neighbor. It's recognizing that I myself am the one who deserves to be killed like these animals to cut into pieces, not God. And so while Genesis 22 is often used to show that scripture is totally unethical, we actually find just the opposite here. What this passage shows us is that the Bible holds to an ethic that is much more stringent than anything we ourselves could imagine putting forward. This passage shows us that by the assessment of God's ethical standards, Isaac, like all of us, deserves death. All of us deserve the covenant curse. All of us have failed to love God and neighbor. This curse falls on all of us, and it's not just one particular group that we might want to isolate, but every single one of us. As the the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously wrote, you might have heard this quote before, if it were only so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart, of every, every human being, end quote. What this passage tells us and what that quote supports is that all of us have perpetrated evil. We are all to blame. We are all at fault. By the unimpeachable ethics of Scripture, all of us are worthy of death. From the ethical perspective of the Bible, then the question is not why should Isaac be killed, but rather why should Isaac or any of us be allowed to live? This is not a lack of ethics. This is the most uncompromising of all ethics. And Isaac knows this. He accepts this. And again, this is the first part of faith. And this makes sense to Abraham because he thinks, yes, Isaac will bear the curse, but as Hebrews tells us, he will be brought back to life. God cannot die, so Isaac must die figuratively in the place of God. But then we read something interesting. We come to verses 10 through 13. We find that just as Abraham was coming, he put out the knife. The angel of the Lord called to him and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, and you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Here we find that Isaac is on the altar, but Isaac is spared, and there's a ram that stands in the place of Isaac. It's not Isaac in the place of God, but rather it's the ram in the place of Isaac. The ram is slain in place of Isaac, not Isaac slain in the place of God. And again, while Abraham understands the sacrifice of Isaac, 
this does seem to be Abraham's hope from the very beginning. As Abraham and Isaac are walking up the mountain, Isaac says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb, the lamb for a burnt offering. Again, the covenant ceremony tells us that the animals have been killed in the place of God. It tells us God cannot die. God cannot literally take the covenant curse deserved by Abraham, by Isaac, by me, and by you. But then we're forced to ask, can he? Might it be the case that God could die? Might it be the case that God could be sacrificed on the altar? Might it be the case that God could literally suffer the covenant curse? And what pushes us to ask this question? Well, it's, it's the mis mismatch that we find in the text. Think about this whole story. The, the narrative is told with much economy, with, with, with much precision. It's very sparse, and it's very careful with its details. But we find a mismatch here. When Abraham and Isaac are going up the mountain, they talk about a lamb, God providing a lamb. But when they actually get to the mountaintop, what they find up there is a ram. So we find, a, we find a dissonance here. And certainly you have to think that later readers were, were tempted to smooth out that mismatch, to make it either lamb and lamb or ram and ram. Why, for thousands of years, was that mismatch allowed to remain? What was God communicating? Well, the ram that was found on the top of the mountain was certainly provided by God, but when Abraham says God will provide for himself the lamb, this ram is not the ultimate object of that provision. It's not the ultimate lamb of which Abraham speaks. We have to look forward. We have to look forward to someone else who's speaking in the wilderness. As John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This lamb, of course, is Christ. And Christ is God become human. Christ is God become mortal. God taking on the possibility of suffering and death. Christ is God being able to take upon himself the curses of the covenant. Christ is God standing in the place of Isaac, not Isaac standing in the place of God. Christ is God subjecting himself literally to the covenant curses and being cut up like these animals. It's Christ He's the one who takes away the sin of the world by bearing literally the covenant curses of sin on our behalf. He's the Lamb of God provided. He is the one of whom Abraham spoke. And on that hill in Golgotha, which is actually in sight of Mount Moriah, Christ just did, Christ did just this on the altar of the cross. As John Stott writes, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. This is the logic of God's covenant with Abraham. We are blessed and God is cursed. And this too is the deep grammar of faith. Remember, the first part of faith is negative. It's the acknowledgement that we deserve to be on the altar with Isaac. 
To be a child of Abraham is to follow this path of Isaac, the child of Abraham. It's to crawl upon that altar with Isaac. It's to accept that same death for which Isaac prepared himself. But there's a second part to faith. It's the positive part. Because Isaac doesn't stay on that altar. God provided a lamb to take his place, Christ to take the covenant curses. And so God gives us the blessings, the blessings deserved by Christ alone who lived the perfect life of love to God and neighbor. And Christ takes those terrible judgments that we deserve. To again quote Scott, to again quote Stott, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. So when we speak of faith, we acknowledge that we are the ones who deserve death, but we have received the greatest of all gifts. By faith, we mean that we deserve to suffer the covenant curses, but we have come to enjoy the covenant blessings. And we have to hold both of these parts together to speak of saving faith, the positive and the negative parts, what theologian Karl Barth will call God's no and God's yes. You cannot have one without the other. And only if we place ourselves on the altar with Isaac can we let Christ take our place upon it. This is the faith of Isaac, who is the child of Abraham. And this, too, is how we ourselves become a child of Abraham. And this is more stringent than any ethics espoused by our modern culture, but it's also a deeper mercy and forgiveness than we could ever fathom. It's the strongest form of ethics that condemns Isaac to die on the altar, but it's the greatest of all mercies that gives him back his life. If we are children of Abraham, the same is true for us. And this is why Abraham can have an offspring that is numbered as the stars, that's numbered by the sands of the sea. Because how do we become the offspring of Abraham? Well, it's by sharing the faith of Abraham, by trusting in that promise, a promise that's for the whole world and all of the peoples in it. Just like Isaac, we're both products of the promise and those who have faith in it. In Isaac, every child of Abraham finds their archetype, their mold, the very pattern of their life. So while this passage is often condemned as unethical because it, as it's assumed, the innocent is put to death, we have to understand what we're saying here because actually there's a sense in which this is true. But it's not Isaac who is the innocent one, but it's Christ who's the innocent one. And he's put to death not at the expense of ethics, but to uphold the most uncompromising form of ethics. What we find here is the story of perfect justice and perfect mercy. And so, uh, to close, what do these truths mean for our lives? Well, if we're children of Abraham, then our lives should be characterized by humility. We deserve death for what we've done. We have no moral high ground to hang over anyone else. When we see Isaac on the altar, we know that we ourselves deserve to be there. We know what we've done, and we know what we're capable of. If we're children of Abraham, then our life should be characterized by gratitude. 
God in Christ has given his very life for us that we might live and enjoy the blessings of communion with God. Everything is a gift, and this is the very logic of salvation that we have been given exactly what we don't deserve. If we're children of Abraham, then our lives should be characterized by joy and by hope. Whatever happens, we know that we have been promised God and a new heavens and a new earth wherein all the present corruption will be purged. And that doesn't mean that we don't work for the good of society. Far from it. It means that our hopes don't rise and fall with those things happening around us. And so we can actually work for the common good with greater rigor, free from that passivity and fear that so often tempted Isaac. And finally, if we are children of Abraham, then our lives should be characterized by restful assurance. Whatever you are facing, the worst of all of your burdens has been borne by Christ. He has brought you into the permanent love and favor and approval of God. You are not the sacrifice. Christ is the sacrifice. Rest, rest and trust and delight in the surety of his work. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you for sending us your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ you have literally borne the covenant curses. You became human so that you might suffer and die, that you might take upon yourself that which we deserve. But you also became human that you might merit the covenant blessings, that you might in our place live the perfect life of love to God and to neighbor. Give us faith, Lord. Help us to rest in the fact that Christ has taken all of our sin and given us all of his blessing. In his name we pray. Amen.